You're listening to a Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 10th annual Tudor in Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at the Royal Irish Academy on the 19th and 20th of August 2022. The conference was generously supported by the Royal Irish Academy and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media in association with History Hub. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of a paper by John McCafferty from University College Dublin, entitled Sparkles of Divine Light, Talking to God in Early Modern Ireland. What I want to do is talk about word choice in, in Early Modern Ireland and the paper really has two origins, or my thinking on this has two origins. One is out of boredom. Um, I'm really bored with Irish historians who treat religion as a branch of politics. So basically, bishops are sort of Fianna Fáil in dresses, and you know, Presbyterians are Unionists, even if they you know <laughs> live in early 17th century Ireland. So that bored the arse off me, and not enough time is given to thinking about religion as religion, as, as Alan very rightly pointed out earlier. And the other reason I, I've been thinking about this is um, because uh, I live in a bilingual household where the arrangement is one parent speaks one language and the other parent speaks the other language and the offspring, uh, like language terrorists, sometimes play between the two languages, sometimes use one and another and so on. And this has fascinated me for, for a long time, also annoyed me for, for a long time. Um, so I'm just going to offer you some reflections on how we could perhaps think about language choice and word choice in particular in, in uh, early, early modern Ireland. Um, and i just give you some quotes here. Uh, Morris Roach, 1600, Roach from Formoy, a mild and comely man learned in the Latin, Irish and English tongues. And, and they're the three languages I'm going to speak about. Nicholas Malby, that person, uh, 1584, but the analysts say he was a man learned in the languages and tongues of the islands of the west West of Europe when he wasn't killing people. Uh, Elizabeth Carey dies in 1639, uh, the wife of Lord Falkland, the Lord Deputy of Ireland. she there, her, her biographers, her daughters, nuns, she's a convert to Catholicism, she there learned to read Irish in an Irish Bible, but it being very hard and few books in it, she quickly lost what she had. She's also alleged to have known French, Spanish, Italian, Latin, some Hebrew, and learned also of a Transylvanian, his language, but finding no use for it, forgot it. And, and actually, there's, a, there's an equivalence here between Transylvanian and Irish, and I can talk about that again. I have a, a side hustle on Elizabeth uh, 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 Carey. Now, I'm going to skip over some of these slides. Annie just talked about the, uh, the Hebrew uh, roots of Irish, but I just want you to um, note this term used by Sharon uh, Caton here, lingua humana. And what I'm interested in is language direction. So where are the languages in early modern Ireland? And often they're written about like a binary star, in which English is waxing and Irish is waning. But of course the reality is, the trajectory is, is that Irish is still on its way to having something like five million speakers. So Irish is not a dying language, it's a growing language. And so is English. And English is on its way to becoming one of the most looked down vernaculars in Europe to becoming what it is now, a lingua franca. 
So what I want to do is talk a little about language and word choice in early modern Ireland in terms of an orrery, that, that object so beloved of our uh, early modern uh, friends. And so there's a couple of things then. I want to talk about language direction through time. And you will be familiar. By the way, this is discursive, and all the sources I'm using are ones that we all use in teaching. I mean, you'll be familiar. We'll, you'll have seen pretty much every one of these before. Uh, here's the English Order Habit and Language Act of 1537, which, as you know, at the moment of the break of Rome, uh, links Angla Anglophony with being a member of the established church quite explicitly. Now, it looks back, of course, to earlier legislation, like Kilkenny and before, but also looks forward to an imperial Anglophone state religion future. Um, by 1634, you have English and Irish in the hierarchy, the familiar hierarchy, the binary hierarchy, in the Irish canons of 1634 that we're all familiar with. So English itself is moving in terms of time in its relationship with Irish. So just, if you think of these languages as moving through time, because all languages are communities of speech. Languages are generated, languages aren't actors in themselves. Languages are only the communities of the people who speak them. Again, very familiar material here, and again, thinking in terms of time and the movement through time. So we often get this thing about, you know, unlike Welsh, Protestants in Ireland get to Irish late. But what I'd like you to draw your attention to here in terms of Protestant printing in Ireland is two things. One is if you look at the range of material from 1571 up to about 1690, the ones I've put in bold I think are very interesting because what we have here is something that you don't find in Wales, which is each of these texts have English wrapping, what I call English wrapping. They have English prefaces. So Irish printed for use in Protestant worship, has an English wrapping in pretty much about half of these texts. And I think that's important because I think what we're seeing here is an anxiety about, and this is about the trajectory of English through time and its relationship with Irish, an anxiety about a miasma attaching to the Irish language. And I don't have time to go into it, but you'll see this very same process for instance, and it's not a particularly Protestant thing, you'll see it in terms of Catholics and their relationship with the speakers of Wendat or Huron and um, Catholic uh, Church's attitude to Nahua, originally wildly enthusiastic, and then you get to the point where, no, I think in order to worship God properly, you have to deracinate this language. And an attitude you get in a very large chunk of Church of Ireland uh, uh, thinking, especially as we move in, into the uh, 18th century. So I think that's a very, very important thing. And again, you know, if you think in terms of the monarchs here, Elizabeth I, for her, Irish, it's a curiosity. It's another language. We have, and I'll show the picture at the end, the, the famous phrase book, which uh, is, 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 it was in, in the Guinness Library. James VI and I, very different attitude to Irish. He spent years trying to combat Irish in the Western Isles and the Highlands. So again... There's a movement through time here, which I think would be important for us to investigate, not just in terms of the alleged failure of Protestant evangelization in relationship uh, to Irish. The other thing I want to note here is the place of publication. Dublin, 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 London, London, London. And if you compare them here with 
roughly speaking, Catholic printing in Irish, and I'm just doing this with print, but I suspect you could do very fruitfully a lot of work around manuscript. But again, I wanted to keep the stuff that was easily accessible and that we all know and uh, maybe love in various ways. And what you have here, I think, is interesting. And again, this is about movement through time and space. My argument is, if you look at where Irish printing is happening, now we know there are pragmatic reasons for this, of course. Leuven, Leuven, Leuven. Brussels, Antwerp, Leuven, 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 Rome, Rome. So what we see here is that Irish printing is happening in an east-west relationship and the Irish language as printed is moving further and further south, closer to the heart of the universal Roman church. So again, I think there's an interesting movement here. Okay, so that's movement through space and time. The other thing I want to do is look at sense of direction. Now, I can do this for all four points of the compass, but I'm not going to bother you with it. And I'll just give you the example of East, because I think it fits, actually, with a lot of what Brendan said so brilliantly uh, yesterday in terms of Europe and thinking about Europe in, in this period. For many clerics, at least, in Ireland, East is no longer East. The place where many high-ranking clerics in the Irish church both English and Gaelic Irish, had gone to be educated, Oxford and Cambridge, they're now cut off. They're not places where you can go. You can still go to the Inns of Court, of course, but you can't go to Oxford and Cambridge where you had traditionally gone. The intellectual hinterland of the medieval Irish church had been to the east. What we get now in Catholic sources, both in Irish and in English and in Latin, is increasing description of England as the Calvinian synagogue. So, Placing it, Judaizing Protestantism. We've, we've all seen that before. English authority in Ireland as Japanese tyranny or Turkish tyranny. In other words, there is in Irish Catholic thinking, both among Anglophones and particularly among uh, uh, Hibernophones, a orientalization in a bad way of, of what had been the East. And, as Alan was saying about the history, you get the exact opposite reaction from Protestant thinking. The Blessed Trinity had already founded a college on our eastern shore. And you'll see in these prefaces, these Gaelic-speaking Irish Protestants reflecting on their view now is this salvation comes from the east. So the cardinal points of the compass have changed in Catholic and Protestant teaching, in, 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 in thinking rather. In, in, in Catholic thinking, the east is now a source of contagion. And you get this again and again and again in, particularly in Irish language sources, whereas in Protestant thinking, the East is the source of uh, salvation. Now, as I say, I could do this for the West, and I could do it for the North, and I could do it for the South. So there's some very, very interesting stuff happening here. Um, and in particular, the adoption by some elements among the Old English of the West, as in Ireland, as a place where true Catholicism or true Christianity is saved in these islands, but I'll, 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 I'll leave that uh, for the moment. The other thing I wanted to do when I was thinking about all this was to uh, think about how Irish is thought about in Europe in general throughout this period. And what we see is, is Irish is um, constantly demonstrated in European books about language often using, so you get this genre of books in early modern Europe of 
What are languages like? Well, let's take the Our Father, and they stick down the Our Father in every possible language. Well, you see the Our Nahar being used in 1542, 1591, 1593, number of other European languages. In my darker moments, I often think that the English attitude towards Irish is simply because English is such a low-status language in early modern Europe that they need another language to look down on. But anyway, that's, that's, just, that's for the bar. Um, again, Spanish Observer in 1593, we see the Chaldaic and Hebrew myth, but you see another kind of wrapping here. There's a wrapping of Irish with Catholicism. Not very surprising, but I think having looking at these views gives us a clue to the possibility of unlocking a lot more material uh, here. I'm sorry this is so whistle-stop, lads. Um, but it, and it probably sounds like bullshit, but I do have the proof. I do. I swear. I can turn uh, dross into gold. Honestly, it, it can happen. Um, the other thing I want to talk about very briefly again, and these are sort of overviews and thoughts on this matter is printing in Irish. The conventional narrative is that printing in Irish is exotic or esoteric, it's elite, and it's expensive. But in many ways, printing in Irish is an affirmation. So when we see the will of Robert Chamberlain, why are we establishing a Gaelic press? For the honour of God, the fame of our nation, and of our order of St. Francis. It's also an exoticization because if you look back, Propaganda Fide effectively engages in a form of Occidentalism. Um, publishes Glagolithic in 1630, Cyrillic 1630, Ethiopian 1630, Persian 1633, Arabic 1639, Georgian 1643, and the first attempt to print in Irish in the Propaganda Fide Press is in 1638. So in other words, what propaganda is also doing, even though the printing's taking place in Rome, is placing it Irish as one of a number of languages on the edges, if you like, of this nebulous concept called Europe that um, Brendan was, was, was talking about. And then also, this kind of view of things in print, of course, fits very well for our friend James Usher, Alan's friend, um, uh, who, of course, believed that the Anglo-Saxons had learned their letters from the Irish, as you know, and Mayo of the Saxons, and all the rest of that stuff. Okay, so... I have about five minutes left, and I'm going to make some very, very, uh, uh, very brief points. We're all familiar with the dialogue about Noshun and Ernig and the or Hispaniole. Well, Hispaniolated is a word used uh, in the period, so I borrowed it. Hispaniolated Irishness. Fines Morrison is absolutely obsessed with this. Fines Morrison's argument is, is that Irish is a language without erratics. It's a language without a root. He won't even give it the sort of nod of it being Hebrew. He says, without a root, and he says, I hear in the courts in Ulster this strange language flecked with Spanish. So this idea that Irish has become Hispanicized, I think, is a very important and dominant idea, which is taken up enthusiastically, of course, by Irish language thinkers. And I think we can extend that beyond Noshun and Erning and the Milesians to look at other things. The Annals of the Four Masters, often seen as both baronius and drawing on the tradition, but it also draws very heavily on the Spanish tradition of the Cronista del Rey. Those sets of chronicles produced to memorialise the Reconquista and the, uh, and the conquista in Latin America. So this idea of 
Irish as becoming, again, moving south, moving towards this Romance language of Spanish, docking with Spanish. Now, I just want to... The other thing I started to look at was word choices, and again, I won't talk about all of these um, singing. I just want to talk about two of them, really. Mumbling, which is everywhere, in English, in Irish, in Latin, and in accounts of Ireland and other languages. And mumbling, as you know, is a kind of anti-Pentecost. It's a kind of corruption of language. And there's huge anxiety about mumbling and what it might mean. And this flows in to this business of exorcisms which begin to take up uh, speed in Ireland in the middle of the 17th century. And it's fascinating to see the way exorcism is deployed, exercising of demons in Spanish and Portuguese by Jesuits in the first four decades of, uh, of the 17th century. So I think there's something very valuable. The other thing is the gender issue, which I think is familiar to us all, but I think a huge amount of work could be done here. Everybody is obsessed about the danger of the threat to your masculinity of speaking the wrong language. So there's a massive amount of invective around the feminising possibilities of both language choice and religious choice and the relationship between the two. And if you look at a lot of the poems, you will see this anxiety writ large, and you'll see the same anxiety, of course, on the side of prose writers in English. I'm not going to talk about punning now. I could talk about it for a long time. I think it's very interesting, but we already had... Thank you, Annie, you saved me a lot of time. Uh, we've already had this, and I, you know, the range of, of punning here. Again, something very, very familiar, just to, to mention, is the, uh, the business of invective. And, of course, there's loads of invective. But what I'm particularly interested in is, is there is no way John Derrick ever heard Donald Zuffy, the Franciscan provincial, make his famous poems about Myler McGrath. And there's no way that Ono Duffy uh, read John Derrick. But if you start to do an analysis, not only of the fact that they both formally use Latin and English, if you look at this word biadi here, and smell feast, begging, ravenous, all those kind of evocations, what you see here, and I think there's, there's a lot of possibility here, or I believe there to be a lot of possibility here, is a synchronicity of invective. What's going on? What kind of invectives are being deployed? What word choices are people making in their invective? And you could say the same for word chains and clusters, which we see again and again. We're so familiar with them, we don't even hear them. English Christian, Irish Papist, Anglo-Heretici, on Reformation. The word Reformation is not used by Irish speakers for the Protestant Reformation at all. When it is first deployed um, by uh, Michal O'Clary, he's using it for the Franciscan Observant Movement. Not even the Protestant Reformation, what Catholics do when they talk about the Reformation is about heretics. Okay. So there's a whole series of clusters and chains here, you know, juggling Jesuits, fiendish friars, seminaries, a cone. I could give you a whole lecture on the lexical use of a whole, a cone in Irish and English in this period. My theory is that a cone is the safe word of. Uh, Religious? Uh, no, this is very dodgy. Um, okay, a cone is the safe word of religious invective in, in early modern Ireland, but I, I could come back uh, to that again. I think the other thing about looking at word choices and chains of words and these phrases that are repeated again and again and again is that we're going to find the voices we don't often hear. I've already spoken about before and I've published on the issue of hibernophone Protestants and what they have to say, but I'm also fascinated by the Anglophone 
English Catholics because they have almost no literature designed for them. They are stuck with English Catholic literature. English Catholics are worried about a whole lot of other stuff, different stuff, recusant stuff. Not what old English Catholics are, are worried about. And every now and then, they hove into view. So here is a translation of Ribadonera's Lives of Saints, produced in 1636. It's got, for, for the Irish market, it's got uh, four saints, Patrick Bridget and Colin Killa, and Finnan of Mead. Now, Finnan of Mead is not in this directory of saints. So every now and then, we can see old English reading in English and how they're reacting uh, to it. So again, I think there are a number of possibilities in terms of finding voices here. I could talk about Presbyterians in silence, but I'm not going to. I just want to finish by, um, is that okay? Yeah. Just making uh, some observations to, to uh, draw this gossamer thin uh, evocation and whistle stop tour together, if you can have the two things. Gossamer thin whistle stop tour. Uh, what we have here in early modern Ireland is three langu- languages with six sets of direction. Latin is the language that's actually in decline. Latin is the language of quotation, education, and exposition. It's the common language. It's got antiquity, prestige, and it's outside the contested spaces of the vernaculars. And my argument is, is, in fact, that for Catholics, for the Catholic Church in Ireland, continued worship in Latin is very handy because you have an ethnically divided church and a linguistically divided church. But there's a fundamental difference between Protestant Latin and Catholic Latin. They share... Quotation, education, and exposition, but only Catholics worship in Latin. And thus, that um, brings me to English, where for the English, lang- English is a language both of worship and of conquest. There's an essentialism about English that is vital to English identity in Ireland. Cranmer has succeeded extremely well, not only with the English, but with Irish Protestants in this essentialism of English. And I think there's a fascinating study to be done on comparing English as spoken in Ireland to Castilian as spoken in uh, Latin America. The other trajectory, of course, for English is that it's a barbarian language and that it's heretical. And, and Brian's work, I think, has elucidated the fact that, and, and also Tom O'Connor's, that when you're heard speaking English in, in continental Europe, there's an automatic assumption that you're a heretic, that Anglophone Catholics have to then dispel in, in, in various ways. And finally, Irish Again, it's also moving two directions. Barbarity we're all familiar with, but another thing that I'm familiar with is Irish is growing as a language, but as somebody, and I can't remember who it is, and if it's one of you, I'm really sorry, Irish is a language where its roof gets blown off at a certain point in the 17th century. The patrons move (coughs) or are forced abroad. And many of the learned classes are forced abroad if they survive at all. And Irish fundamentally changes then in its social structure. And I think there's something very interesting to be detected there about a language which loses, in many ways, not all of it, but loses an awful lot of its elite discourse and in terms of its future. And then on the other hand, you have this idea that Irish is both civilised and essential. So, what I want to say, really, and I should have just said this beginning and spared you all a lot of trouble and let you go to the pub, all of these word choices and all these directions and movements in these three languages are affecting each other in very subtle ways. And it seems to me that their word choices are now our written evidence, and we need to heed that, because I think what's in there, in all these word choices and in these directions of movement of, of these three languages, in this orrery, is stuff that's been waiting to get out for centuries.
Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. You can access the entire archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.